Welcome back to the 51st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including ones that have to do with the economy and two different approaches to it. And then our last story comes from NPR, and we're going to talk about Tunisia, the center of the Arab Springs nearly 11 years ago at this point, and how their democracy is looking nowadays. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on today. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. So what does the U.S. economic future look like to you? As we no doubt are going through a very hard time out, time right now economically, and we're likely to face even harder times in the future, how are we going to come out of it? With a more centralized planned economy, which is being proposed by those like Rokana or other individuals on the left, or a more deregulated one proposed by many of those on the right? And not only do I want your opinion on where you think we're headed, but why, and if you would be willing to put it down there, which do you prefer? And, you know, if you don't have a good idea yet, we're going to discuss both of these kind of approaches in a very vague, general sense in our next two articles. And speaking of that, let's jump to the first one. This one is from the American prospect, Rokana, on the new economic patriotism. So just before we really get into the article, I want to note that this is an interview between Rokana and David Dayan. So some of the quotes had to be pulled out of context, meaning that I don't necessarily have the question that was asked there. But if you want access to the entire interview, there will be a link in the description. So, Kana, throughout this interview, talks a lot about bringing jobs back to America. And this is a really hot topic that everybody's talking on, and of course they are. Even if they don't necessarily believe in it themselves, I'm not trying to be cynical, but even if politicians don't believe in bringing back these jobs because there are political interests, there are corporate interests that are lobbying to allow them to keep their jobs overseas. At least it's a great talking point that really strikes home to the blue-collar worker that a lot of people, a lot of politicians are trying to talk to. But throughout this entire article, he talks about bringing jobs back to America. And he even helped, or at least created legislation that helped the CHIPS Act kind of formulate this new plan. So what I mean by that is he didn't actually create the CHIPS Act. He wasn't actually one of the main writers, or at least of the current version. He wrote legislation in the past that was implemented into the CHIPS Act when they passed it earlier this year. And a lot of this talk of bringing back jobs is around new technologies, especially the ones mentioned in the CHIPS Act. These new technologies, you know, chips, talking about hydrogen extraction for hydrogen energy, or even carbon extraction from the atmosphere for graphene and other processes, all of these technologies are going to become ever more important in the future. And they provide an opportunity for the U.S. to reindustrialize, essentially, or at least that's how Ro Khanna is kind of spinning it. 
And he has a great point in that these industries are burgeoning. Not many people are on top of them besides maybe China and a few Nordic countries. And at this point, if we want to be the center of a future economy, future global economy, that is ever more dependent on chips, is ever more dependent on hydrogen energy and some of these new technological innovations, then we need to have the infrastructure, we need to have the industry here in America. And at some point, the conversation also drifts off to, well, these are going to be clean jobs, but are they going to be good jobs? And though Rokonik is a very political answer, which is, they should be, and we want them to be, and we're going to try to make them be good jobs. We're going to try to incentivize these companies to have benefit packages, to allow the workers to unionize, and so on. I think he could have answered that question more directly, which is we don't know 100%, but if you think about it, every single industry, every single piece of technology that I just brought up there, they are electronics. They are burgeoning industries. They are highly sophisticated processes. So at this point, before the industry becomes uh, industrialized or, let's say this way, becomes more efficient with their labor practices, while they still need humans to do a lot of the work before they can have robots and AIs take over, then yes, a lot of these workers will get paid very well. Now, does that mean it's going to be long-term growth in these sectors of the economy and long-term great pay and great benefits? No, because eventually AI will be able to do a lot of the work. Robots will be able to do a lot of the work as we refine our practices. But for now, it will be good jobs for Americans. The only concern that comes with that is, like I said, the future. And do we really want to create these jobs or at least give these jobs to people knowing that in the future these processes could be overtaken by robots? So then, you know, you give them a little bit of short-term help now, but the long-term help isn't in their favor. I don't know. I think that's a very, very interesting question that would have to be tackled. I would personally go for short-term, just because these new industries, as we industrialize the nation, and, or I take that back, reindustrialize certain parts of the nation, and we have these new industries that keep growing, even if a lot of those blue-collar jobs go away, if we have the people working in them who have a good understanding of the technology and how it's built, some of those people will be able to move up into higher level positions that are going to be created because of this new industrialization. So I think that though we may lose a few blue-collar jobs, it will also provide lots of upward mobility and opportunity for some of those blue-collar workers who have a good understanding of the place they were just working for five years before the robots started working on it. And then they can better work the supply chains, maybe coordinate with some of the providers since they know which components are actually worth the time, so on and so forth. So I kind of got a little bit off there, but let's go back to what Mr. Rokon has to say. Quote, well, my overarching priority is how do we frame progressive economic policies in a way that has the broadest possible appeal? The fundamental challenge of this country was the deindustrialization and shipping off of jobs offshore. And we've got to basically have a moonshot to bring the new industries across this country to have a trade surplus again. The advent of new technology provides us an opportunity. The awareness post-COVID makes the American people more interested in this. We've done it in sort of a piecemeal way with CHIPS, the CHIPS Act, by the way, 
but we can do it in every part of the country with conditionality. So on stock buybacks, so no on stock buybacks, prevailing wage, open labor neutrality, which is what FDR did in the New Deal. I'm going doing a bill with Senator Marco Rubio. I wanted $2 trillion. He's agreed to $2 billion to create an economic development council that reports to the president to do this, and he's signing on to it, which shows that there's openness in the Republican ranks for what I call the new economic patriotism, patriotism, end quote. And of course, you know, this has partisan support. Not only does it bring jobs back, which they can tout as, oh, a big win for America and their voters, but also it... It could, in theory, bring back a lot of tax dollars to the U.S. from these corporations that have moved their operations overseas. But I think that I should point out here that the framing of his theory, his idea, his new way of approaching the economy is called economic patriotism. That's really tricky. It may be accurate. I'm not disagreeing with that because at the end of the day, you know, we are supporting America and that's a patriotic, noble action and it's on the economic front. So therefore, economic patriotism. But it's kind of a cloak and dagger way or just a veiled way to say, oh, yeah, yeah, these are progressive policies, but they help America. And then if you engage in them, you're an economic patriot. It's just really tricky and I'm not trying to say it's the policy itself is necessarily a bad thing because I think there are good aspects to it and I think there are bad aspects to it. And we'll get into some of the bad aspects here. And I think he listed a lot of the good aspects up there. But at the end of the day, I think that the framing of this is always interesting and it's meant to be really appealing without actually describing what they're doing. So just keep that in mind. I know I say it all the time, and probably most people listening, or at least who have gotten to this point, are aware enough of how politicians operate and the political terminology that they use. But I'd always want to point it out to people who may not understand, because at the end of the day, you need to be a little bit cautious when you hear things that sound this amazing. Oh, yes, economic patriotism. Patriotism, that sounds amazing. It does. It sounds like we are all on the same page, that we're being patriotic. We want America to thrive. And I'm not saying Rokana doesn't, but it normally leads people to say, oh, it's just a good thing, rather than looking into it and truly understanding what's going on underneath the hood. All right, so the thing that I think is necessary, not necessarily a great thing, Quote, one of the ideas I'm exploring is also what you should keep your receipts at the end of the year and get a tax credit if you buy American-made shoes, American-made products. And then, end quote, Dan Dayan says, uh, a made-in-America tax credit kind of thing, end quote. Rokana comes back with, yes, quote, to incentivize production, yeah. The advantage of this, I think, is it can position progressive policies as what is necessary for economic resilience, economic support. It can say, look, we need to work with business, but only if businesses are investing in the United States, creating jobs in black and brown communities and rural communities, end quote. So if we want to break this down, what they're saying is if you buy American-made goods, then you can kind of get a tax credit, a tax write-off towards some value of the good at the end of the year. Now, that sounds like it's a program that just benefits the American people. 
But in if you've already jumped ahead of me here, sorry, but I'm going to explain out my, my reasoning in this one, which is it's going to make people be a little bit more vigilant about buying American-made goods, meaning that in order to be appealing to customers, companies are going to have to return a lot of their processes to America, or they're just going to have to lie about the made-in-America goods. And then they're going to have to say, okay, we made this in America. That's why people want to buy it. Our profits may go down just a little bit, but at the end of the day, we're getting a wider swath of the population who's buying a certain product. Now, that sounds great in theory, and it sounds like a really roundabout way, but if you think about it, it's practically subsidizing the transition from the overshore industries to the onshore industries. It's not the government directly going to these industries and saying, we will pay you to bring it back onshore, but they're essentially telling them, if you bring things back on shore, then we are going to pay to have a certain segment of the population want to buy your product more. Now, of course, if there are a whole bunch of companies that come back and start producing in the U.S., they're not going to get as many benefits. But still, the government is basically saying we can guarantee that there's a certain segment of the population, those that want this tax credit, that will buy one of your products that is made in America. That's a really roundabout way of subsidizing something. And also, it's a very roundabout way of having a central planning or a central plan for the economy, saying to companies, you have to do something this way. Now, it is an Americanized version. It's not like the Soviet Union where they say, you have to build it this way. It's more, you have to build it this way because that's where we're putting the incentive and the profits at the end of the day. It's a very roundabout way, and it takes advantage of the American capitalist ideals, but in a very progressive, not socialist, but kind of getting there way. And I think it's very interesting and clever from Rokana, but I also think it's a little bit scary, if I'm being honest. And that's the main problem with this idea that I wanted to bring up. It's these sort of pr proposals that sound very clever, that sound very capitalistic at first. Oh, yes, we're just going to incentivize these companies to come back because we're going to tell people that if they buy Made in America. So at the end of the day, we're still giving the profits to the companies that are made in America. We're not actually buying the products off of them. We're just giving them a small tax subsidy or a small tax break. So, you know, it sounds very clever at first, but at the end of the day, it's still more government spending and it's still more government subsidizing of these industries, even if it's in a very indirect way. So I think it's something I wanted to point out. I don't necessarily think it's the worst idea. I don't necessarily think it's the best idea. But now we can jump into our second article. This one comes from the American Institute of Economic Research. And yes, I said it in a hoity-toity first voice because they kind of give that air when I was reading their article. Overcoming challenges to economic freedom in states. Quote, people put, point to tax burdens and overregulation as reasons for economic decline. But the reality is that high government spending is the precursor to heavy taxes and regulation. Look no further than the Fraser Institute's latest report to see how states rank for economic freedom based on government spending, taxes, and labor market regulation. The five lowest-ranking states for economic freedom are Oregon, 
Vermont, Hawaii, California, and New York, 46 to 40 to 50th in that order. The most economically free states from 1 to 4 are Florida, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Texas, and Tennessee is actually tied with Texas for 4th. So, do you notice anything about the states that are at the bottom and anything about the states that are at the top? And, of course, the source is a conservative one. And, of course, using the Fraser Institute Index, again, is which is a conservative institution, shows a very specific point of view. But it does at least take in some non-subjective measures when looking at economic freedom. So the author highlights that anytime the government takes from you, it is infringing upon your freedom. This, of course, is the bargain that you sign up for, though, when choosing to live in a society or even a local community. The idea of government and society is that you could be living in the woods by yourself. You could be a true individual. You could be completely individualistic, preparing food for yourself, killing deer, protecting yourself, your family, so on and so forth. But when we join a society, we have to give up certain aspects of our freedom, certain aspects of what we can do as a human being. You can no longer go out and attack your neighbor if they step on your crops. Oh, yeah, some guy was passing through my territory the other day. He stepped on my carrots, so I decided to go out and give him the slash slash real quick. No, you can't do that anymore. Now that you're part of a society, at least in American society, you would have courts to settle this dispute. You can't just go out and do as you please. You can't simply go and kill a deer anytime you would like. Rather, there are certain seasons for killing deer. There are certain seasons for killing turkeys. These sort of things. And of course, it could, the I'm using very small examples here. It extrapolates even further. You give up certain pieces of your freedom to in certain countries to hold weapons. But in turn, there's a police force that has guns that is meant to protect you. So this is kind of the bargain that we enter. And the author is getting at here that anytime the government takes from you, it's infringing upon your freedom. And he's not he's not wrong at all. I was about to say not necessarily wrong. He is not wrong at all. But that is also part of the bargain that you sign up for in order to be a member of the society, to be a member of the nation. So I think that why I really wanted to bring this up, and it kind of we'll kind of get into it a little bit more towards the end as well. But I think that the reason this is important to bring up is to understand that at the end of the day, you have to understand how much you are willing, how much of your freedom you are willing to give up in order to be a part of that society. And we'll kind of expand on this more once I get past this next quote, and we can elaborate there. Quote, the lowest ranking states for economic freedom spend extensively and raise taxes to fund self-imposed expenses instead of limiting spending to what the average taxpayer can't afford. Given this, there's no surprise that New York is 50th. The state's extreme spending has led it to what happens to be a $10 billion deficit. It also ranks last in individual income taxes and second to last in property taxes, according to the Tax Foundation's latest rankings of state business tax climate. 
which ranks the state 49th overall. End quote. But this does sound bad at first. You do need to ask that question. What am I giving up? What freedoms am I giving up? And what am I gaining from this society? This The state is just a little mini society. It's a little mini nation. What am I gaining from the money that I am giving? What am I gaining from those taxes that are being taken from me? And if some of the programs in New York really benefit you, if you like some of the policies, if you are willing to stand on your principles over how much money is being taken from you, then go to New York, live in New York. It's your choice. And the author frames this as economic freedom is the most important thing. You have to be willing to push your states to be more economically free. And I agree. If you have the values of someone who wants economic freedom, if you want a thriving entrepreneurship industry, if you want innovation, if you want technology that's going to help us live a little bit longer, cure certain diseases, help the world as a whole, or maybe just you as an individual. Maybe there's a new toaster innovation that does it two times faster and it saves you some time in the morning and you really want that. The economic freedom is one way to get to that. Rather than subsidizing it through the government, you allow entrepreneurs to go into the market and say, wow, Billy Bob Joe, they want that toaster. They want the toaster that's two times faster. And there's a segment of the market there. Well, since I'm in an economically free state, I can risk my own money. I can go out, create a company, and I can build that toaster for Billy Bob Joe. So the author says it as it's an end all. But I think that it's not necessarily quite that simple. I think at the end of the day, if you want to live in a place that is more economically tightened, but it provides you with more of a welfare program, more of a safety net, a social safety net, then that is okay. And you can go there and you can live your life as you wish to. And that's the one thing the author doesn't necessarily get at. The author, like I said, really believes economic freedom is the answer to everything. And while I agree on a fundamental level, it is still a person's choice. It is still up to that person how much they are willing to give up to be a part of that society. And I think that's something the author could highlight a little bit more. Because obviously they have a conservative view, or at least a certain view on this, that they are not willing to hear any other opinions, or at least it it seems that way. And I would love if someday I could sit down with this person and they'd laugh in my face and say, no, no, you totally misunderstood. I'm just saying economic freedom is the best. In which case I'd be like, oh, yeah, sir, you're not wrong. I agree. But the way he frames it just really got underneath my skin when I first read it. Because at the end of the day, we live in America where you can choose and you should be able to choose to go to New York if you like the programs there. And that is the beauty of America. You have the freedom to do so. So that's really where I wanted to get with this one. So I wanted to, or at least these last two articles, I wanted to contrast Ro Khanna's opinion of having a more centralized, planned economy, even though it doesn't outright come and say that, and even if it's not necessarily that drastic what he's calling for, at the end of the day, a lot of the policies he's proposing are federally subsidized or federally backed kind of programs that 
allow them to put the money where they want it to thrive, which is getting closer to a centralized plant economy. Or you have a gentleman over here who's saying that in the spirit of America, the whole point of America is to be innovators, entrepreneurs, to make new technologies, to constantly be pushing towards more and more innovation. And to do that, we have to have economic freedom. We have to have less planning, less regulation, less taxes, and tax incentives. And I just wanted to highlight both sides of this. And if you now have an opinion, if you have now reached this point, which I am very impressed if you made it to about 24 minutes and 30 seconds, if you have made it this far and you didn't have an opinion at the very beginning and you have one now and you've heard both sides, Throw a comment down there because I would love to hear what people have to say. And if you think I am a f- I am full of bunk on either side, if I'm just riding the fence, whatever criticism you can level at me, throw it down there. I would love to hear it, and I would love to improve. And at the end of the day, I may think, well, nope, you're wrong. I don't agree with you. I'll probably comment back saying something, but I just want a little bit of engagement, especially on this one, because I think it's a very interesting topic and both of these articles showed up in my inbox the same day or they showed up on my flipboard the same day so i instantly thought well i guess i'm doing an economic episode this just came perfectly at the same time all right so we'll do a quick little segment on tunisia this story comes from npr uh so tunisians are voting in an election critics say could cement a return to autocracy So years ago, Tunisia was the center of the Arab Spring, fueled by a generation focused on high unemployment and a dim future. Twelve years later, there are still those that are discontent. Quote, rights groups say that both budding democracy that emerged from the 2011 Arab Revolution is now at risk of returning to autocracy under Tunisia's president, Kais Saeed. He has been consolidating power and arresting political opponents. The parliamentary election appears to be one more step towards cementing this regression, end quote. And, you know, where does Tunisia go from here? There, you know, there's two different states of mind on the issue. And, or at least there are two uh, ways of looking at it that I have. One, Tunisia's is unstable and has a youth population that can't find work, that is disillusioned. That's also known as a youth bulge. And if you want to look that term up, it will greatly describe and better describe than I can what's going on in Tunisia currently. And normally with youth bulges, this kind of, it leads into a revolution or at least some sort of attempt to change the current system. So that's thought process number one. Thought process number two people will come to accept the reality of their situation and push and fight politically for their democracy rather than resorting to violent revolution. I think in either case, there is going to be pushback. There is going to be some sort of change. I just don't know whether it's going to be violent or peaceful. But that's also me as an outsider, just reading one article about Tunisia rather than spending time to read a whole book about the Arab Springs and their history as a nation and without that kind of context knowing how willing a certain population has been historically to revolt or rise up against the government I find it hard to say anything 100% but that's just where I stand especially considering 
2011, they did, they had a revolution that sparked revolutions or at least uprisings across the entire Middle East. So there's still, what, 11 years is, is not that long in terms of a nation's history. They're not that far away from that moment. They're still unstable. And the more unstable a nation, the more recent the revolution, civil war, any form of violent conflict is, the more unstable, the more likely the nation is to return to that conflict. So, but there are people on both sides of the conversation. Quote, I don't want to say the situation was better before, but the reality is that the situation has gotten much worse, especially for the youth, and I am one of them. Jade, quote, we have lost hope. We have lost expecting things. There's nothing on the horizon, end quote. So Jade is part of the segment of the population that protested in 2011 and was, he was freshly out of college and right now he's about 31 years old. So he was 20 back then. And, you know, he's had a really hard time locking down a job and he's had very little hope for the future. And that kind of speaks to the segment of the population that I think is most likely to of revolt to go against the government in a violent fashion. They're young. They don't see any other way out. They see one solution, or at least they see very few solutions, and one always comes to mind. Uh, the government has done me wrong, so let's overthrow it. But there are others, like his brother, quote, Jade's older brother, Yashin, is voting. He's 49 and has a job. Uh, quote, I respect my brother's point of view. I respect all the different points of view, but I disagree with him, Yashin said. The 25th of January opened new horizons and gave us hope. If we lose hope, we lose the coming generations. We lose those who are now migrating illegally. We lose those who are unemployed and have been fighting to find a job for years. We lose everything. People just need to be patient, Yashin said. Give the president some time. Vote in a new parliament. End quote. And... You know, we'll end after that quote with one exception or one point to be added, which is notice the big difference besides their age is one has a job, one doesn't. And I think as we as Americans go into a hard economic time where the unemployment rate is likely to go up, we're going to see a little bit more discontent, a little bit more anger at the system. Because when people don't have a job, they feel like they can't be economically prosperous. They feel like they have no ability to move upward in society. They become frustrated. When people believe they are stagnant and they are not moving upward, they become stagnant. And joblessness has a lot to do with that. So I think that's something we need to keep in mind as we go forward. And I just think it's always something important to point out. And if you ask an economic uh, economist, they're going to say, yeah, Alex, we know this. I'm sorry, you don't need to say it. But I'm just reinforcing it or just stating it for somebody who doesn't necessarily know. All right, let's get away from this sadder stuff. And let's go to the animal rescue site. This is our daily delight. Horse gallops across a field to greet friendly cat. So do you have one of those unlikely friends that people wouldn't assume is your friend, but you just seem to click? Well, we have one of those situations. Quote, it's true that love knows no bounds, and Champion Morse are doing their part to prove it. The unusual friends first met back in 2013 when a woman named Jennifer went to the shelter and adopted a black cat. 
Morris. End quote. Champy is so enamored with this cat that he was caught on video running full speed to greet the little guy sitting on a fence post. Quote, she wasn't sure how Morris would fit into her home life at first, but it wasn't long before all her fears disappeared. Not only did Morris take make himself at home, but he quickly befriended the family horse, Champy. Despite being such different sizes and breeds, the two became BFFs and virtually inseparable. Champy even carries Morris around on his back, end quote. And that photo is just too funny. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos or read any of today's articles, they will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there is the Twitter feed at your daily fip. Give it a follow. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.